Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. We are now, of course, in the three weeks, and uh, when our uh, show left off last week, um, we were talking about the phenomenon of Hordus of Herod, and uh, very briefly, the entire period that we're uh, speaking about was a period characterized by... Uh, foreign policy problems for the Jews, but uh, more poignantly, um, internal strife. As we've seen, they sort of uh, constantly plagued. The one time they had a state of Israel in the Second uh, Temple period, the one time what we call the Maccabean Hasmonean state, which uh, the Jews uh, fought like crazy with each other, and then it got worse. And that's only because uh, the Romans came in, because as we saw, it was the wrong time, the wrong place it happened to be that the Roman Republic was expanding into the Middle East. They never had a plan uh, to take over Israel, Judea. The Romans didn't even particularly want to do so, uh, simply because they saw it as a uh, real pain in the neck, and they were right. And uh, that's part of the uh, tragedy of the whole thing. You understand the United States today, for example, is not really interested, even if it could, in taking over Saudi Arabia. They, they don't even want to do it because of the population. That's the way the Romans thought about Palestine and Judea. It's a troublesome place uh, with a bunch of crazy people in it, and uh, that's part of the tragedy because, as we saw last week, one of the reasons they put Herod in there and supported him uh, throughout his reign, from the time, as I outlined at the end last week, that uh, the Roman civil wars came to an end, and there was one winner, and he had killed everybody else, and that's how they stopped the fight, namely Augustus Caesar. Uh, and then he ruled, uh, you know, unchallenged, basically, for the next 40, 50 years. The exact dates are 31 B.C. to, to 14 uh, you know, see when he ruled as the only survivor, uh, there were no politics uh, to talk about in the Middle East because Rome ruled everything. And all you had to do was uh, stay on the good side of Augustus Caesar, and that, you may be certain, is what Herod made it his business to do. He, fortunately for the Jewish people, political genius at that regard. And there's nothing the Jews could do about it. You couldn't get to the Romans. You couldn't get to Augustus, apparently. You couldn't even get, as some tried, to his wife, Livia, to try to uh, do something about Herod because basically uh, he's our boy. You understand? He's my guy in there. And that's how Augustus, if you want to get very Roman about it, ran the empire through a bunch of old boy network types of uh, client relationships. And uh, there was the tragedy. As a result, for 40, 50 years, the Jews, again, if you want to be technical, it's 37 BC to, to 4, so that's uh, 40 something years. Uh, during those years, the Jews were stuck with uh, Herod as their leader. Um, Herod, whether or not he was Jewish is always a debate, you know, if you want to get into halachic questions. But I'm not interested in even going there because it doesn't matter. Uh, the bottom line is he wasn't really Jewish in thought and feeling and personality. Um, he peopled his administration, for example, and this is out of his own books written by his fans and supporters, uh, with people who are not Jewish, the prime minister, the, the, the foreign minister, and the people in charge of the treasury. He recruited a large army of uh, non-Jewish mercenaries to run the country. He didn't do it to fight any foreign wars because there were basically hardly any foreign wars during this period. It was for internal control. And if you want to get a picture of the reign of terror that characterized the years of Herod, all you have to do is look in the Pirkei Avos where Hillel famously says he was once walking down a river, and maybe some of you remember this, and he saw a skull floating down the river, and he said, I know you. Uh, you were a killer, an executioner, and uh, because you executed so many people, they did it to you in the end. And in the end, whoever did it to you, it's going to happen to him also. May I ask you a question? What's going on? He's walking down the river, you see skull floating down the river. Uh, one hopes that this is not a typical occurrence in uh, Israel or, or anywhere. And uh, no, it was a typical occurrence at that time. And, uh, you know, that's the Pirkeovus way of saying what kind of ways, what kind of uh, uh, times they, they lived in. It was a reign of terror. And uh, even Josephus who made it his business in his uh, history to uh, pretty much copy copiously from the adulatory biography of Herod by Herod's uh, Secretary of State, uh, Nicholas of Damascus, even he has to admit that, uh, yeah, he did a lot of terrible things. Just he wants to sort of justify it in a manner that would uh, appeal to a, a Greek and Roman audience, which is basically, you know, like Lenin said, you've got to uh, crack a lot of eggs if you want to make an omelet. But uh, the Jews are the ones that 
uh, suffered terribly during this period. It's ironic, by the way, that uh, this is the period Hill and Shammai, when the study of the Torah actually flourished in an unusual context, meaning that there was a reign of terror, and in order to live at that time at all, you had to adopt, obviously, a policy of absolute abstinence from politics. Uh, you, you talk about the ball game, you talk about whatever you want to talk about, you talk about the weather, you don't say anything at all about politics because it will get out, it will be interpreted or misinterpreted, and you will get arrested and you will get killed and then you'll be tried and then you'll be found guilty. And that, that was the Herodian system. Or you'll, or you'll be sent off in huge numbers as slaves uh, overseas so that that's when we got rid of his opponents by selling, you know, that way, sort of like Hitler, you can turn a profit at it by selling them to the salt mines in various places like in Egypt and in Asia Minor and so forth. And the result is he was uh, able to demonstrate sufficient energy to run the country like a dictator because it takes a lot of energy to do that and uh, he, he was the one to do it. And the result is the Jews suffered very uh, heavily during that period. And as I say, if people like Hillel and Shammai did uh, do their thing during his reign, because that's when they lived, then uh, it has to do a lot with their striving very heavily to maintain a very low profile and stick entirely to halachic issues, uh, Tuma and Tahara, Shabbos and Kashras, uh, everything away from, from uh, politics. And uh, it is, as I say before, ironic, although I don't want to get too far down this road because that will take us into a history of the Torah Shavu'al Peb, which is not what I want to speak about now. It's ironic that this, a significant period in the history of the oral law takes place precisely during the reign of this monster, uh, Herod, which is why, very famously, the Tosefta, which is very old, it's pre-Gemara, when it, uh, long ago says that uh, that the first of uh, the Mishkan was destroyed because they didn't treat the uh, the Karbanas and the holy things there with proper respect. And the first temple was destroyed because of the big three, and killing and idolatry and all that. But what about the second temple? We know that they were learning very heavily the Torah. It was, a, it was a period of significant intellectual and religious activity. But, uh, but because of the bribery and the love of money and the, and the internal sign hatred, the sinas uh, the hatred that one had for the other, the factionalism that characterized this period, uh, that led eventually, as we're going to see, to the destruction of the Second Temple and a lot more than that as well. So in our story, it carries forward that from the 30s BCE till 4 uh, CE, you know, jumping over, the, uh, that was the reign of Herod, Hortus. And uh, he bankrupted the country. He uh, heavily taxed the people, I mean, you know, into, into dire poverty. He carried off whole families into slavery. Uh, he killed people at the drop of a hat if anybody uh, told on them. And this, everything I'm telling you, you get from Josephus, who liked him. Uh, and all kinds of, and, and, and he... Uh, used Jewish tax money to pay for very elaborate architectural projects overseas so that he would get good PR. Uh, if you're Greek, if you're Egyptian, if you're Roman, you think of Herod the Great. And the tour guides still use that language when you go to Israel. Because in his day, they built a gigantic amphitheater in uh, Egypt and a huge hippodrome in what you call today Lebanon. And he had some kind of public uh, buildings that he dedicated in Greece and in Italy, and so people say, he's a good guy. And uh, you know, that was his goal. Where did he get the money? And what was the price of all this? Uh, that's a separate question. And that is the uh, price that Jewish people, as they say, had to pay for it. So it was a very uh, difficult period. The Jews themselves uh, obviously hated him. And, uh, and uh, you know, the Jewish people were still going through a state of shock because it wasn't that long ago that they had this kingdom that you see over here in the map that we looked at the other day, the Hasmonean kingdom, which the Maccabees and the Hashemunayim, whatever their problems were, uh, did create the second state of Israel. And one of the things they did, one of the significant things they did, one of the very controversial things they did was to make sure that there were no non-Jews living here. They forcibly converted or they expelled anybody who wasn't Jewish. They felt it's right, others felt it's wrong. That's what they did. And the reason is, they didn't want to have to go through what they had gone through previously prior to the Maccabean Revolt, 
when there was uh, a majority and very significant areas of non-Jews intensely hostile to the Jewish population in Eretz Yisrael. In other words, nothing has changed. And they, well, it's true. And, uh, you know, Israel's big problem is not the enemies that they have far off, although that is a big problem, obviously. But the really significant problem is when you have somebody, as we're seeing now, somebody can live in one neighborhood in Jerusalem and go and, and blow up a tractor or whatever, you know, a few blocks away. That's what he did with the enemy uh, within. This, the Maccabees and the Hashemunim didn't want that to happen. Herod, and now, Jake, if you can switch the map. Herod re reversed this process uh, disastrously. As you can see here, uh, the map that I'm pointing to shows a slightly different configuration, and that's typical Romans. They uh, let him be king of the country, but they change the borders a little bit. They add a state he over here in the upper uh, right-hand corner, as you see in the Transjordan area. They took off a couple of cities in the uh, coastal plain. It's all part of the Roman uh, policy that uh, we're in charge. Uh, you hold your throne and your power uh, by our sufferance. And I might say, there's a very interesting Gemara, which talks about why Herod builds the, the, the base Amigdash, built the temple, and one of the stories over there in the Gemara is that the Romans write to him and they say, uh, you know, don't you dare try anything about us because we have your file. And we know you're neither the king nor a son of a king. Uh, we can pull you down anytime we want, and so don't overstep the bounds. And even Josephus says that one time Augustus got angry at Herod for doing something, and he said, if you continue this, uh, you will no longer be my friend but my subject. And that's all he needed to say. And so the Jews could not even uh, entertain the illusion of independence, which is what the Romans were fostering. Uh, they knew that Herod is 100% uh, under the Romans, and maybe even worse. It's very important what I'm saying, maybe even worse. Because uh, it's true he uh, did a number of significant uh, building projects in Israel, most famously the temple, the base of Megdush. There, of course, have been three temples, three base of Megdush. We want to be very technical about it, although we don't usually think of it that way. The first base of Megdush, obviously, was built by Shlomo Melch long ago in the first temple era, obviously, and that was destroyed by the Babylonians. The second one was built at the, what we colloquially called the time of Ezra Nehemiah, the beginning of the time of King Cyrus and, and, and the early Persian period. And then Herod completely knocked it down and rebuilt it from top to bottom. So when you go to Israel today, uh, what you see is the Herodian temple. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, there are no traces at all of the pre-Herodian temple, which is why people like Arafat and others can claim there, is, there was none. Now, you know and I know, in addition to everything else, every day they're doing funny things to corrupt the archaeology in the mosque. Uh, you know, the things that they're trashing and destroying are precisely, I'm sure, evidence of pre-Herodian temple materials. But nevertheless, if you want to be exact about it, all we have left over today is from Herod's time. So there have been three temples, as it were, but we regard it all as, as the Bayashini, as the second temple period. When we speak in Torah literature of a third temple, we're not talking about that. But uh, that was a pathetic attempt to try to gain popularity. Let's put it that way. Even the Gemara in this famous story says, after he killed all the rabbis, then he said, well, maybe I shouldn't have done that, and uh, maybe I can make it up by building a fancy building. And, you know, that's his mentality. You understand? Uh, it's very fascinating, although I don't want to get too technical over here, to marry together or put side by side the accounts that one reads on the one hand in places like Josephus, and on the other hand, the ones you read in the Chazal and the rabbinic literature. But he died in the year four. And when he did, he had left such a bad taste that um, the Jewish people appealed to Augustus Caesar not to allow his family to continue to rule them. As I say, once again, Josephus records this, that there were delegations from all kinds of different factions, all of whom had in common that they didn't want the Herodian dynasty to continue. They hated each other. They wanted to go back to the good old days of fighting and killing each other the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the other groups, but they all agreed, uh, ABH, anybody but, but Herod and his dynasty. And uh, his son tried to take over the position for a short time, and it didn't work out. He didn't have the father's ruthlessness, and uh, the Romans fired him, and in year six, I think, um, the, the uh, Augustus Caesar said, if you don't want the Herodian dynasty to rule, then I'll take over directly. And that's what happened. And from that time on, uh, Israel, Judea, if you want to call it that, became a direct province of, uh, of the Roman Empire. Very complex administrative structure. It was like a personal province of the emperor, but it doesn't matter. They came directly under Rome, and that was a big mistake. Among other things, 
it lasted more than 600 years. Okay? The Jews, Judea, Eretz Yisrael, remained a Roman province uh, from the year 6 to the year 636. So that's a long time. And nobody figured on that. Second of all, uh, you know, foreign rule sometimes looks better, uh, but it turns out not necessarily to be that way. It has its own set of problems. Undoubtedly, the Jews thought that the Romans are very famous for their administration. Uh, justice and law is almost synonymous with Rome. Uh, fair but tough goes along with the image that the Romans themselves tried to project. And broadly speaking, the provinces that were ruled by Rome over a couple hundred years more or less was pretty fair. You know, you had your pluses and minuses, but more or less it was pretty fair. So I, sure, the Jews figured anybody better than Herod. But they were wrong, of course, because uh, from that time on, um, Eretz Yisrael completely lost its independence. Uh, they uh, became a province of the Romans. Once again, they played around with the boundaries over here. You know, they took a little part and gave it to one of Herod's sons, and another little part and gave it to, an, uh, to his sister. But fundamentally, the map remained Eretz Yisrael, and uh, then they're in, big, they're in big trouble. Because then you're really dependent, 100%, on who the Romans decide to send as the governor and the administrators and that sort of thing. In addition, uh, Jerusalem had always been the capital, obviously, of Eretz Yisrael. Well, not necessarily Herod, who knew how unpopular he was, wanted to build his own capital, which would be a non-Jewish city, uh, which I won't say no Jews were allowed, but basically no Jews were allowed in his time. Caesarea, of course, which he happened to name after Augustus Caesar. I guess that's the first name that came to his mind. And the, uh, well, a lot of cities in Israel, like Tiberias, Tiberia, many cities like that. Um, that city was uh, going to be a city uh, full of uh, you know, Greek and Roman uh, pagan temples and public buildings and hippodromes and race courses and things of that nature. Today we'd say a golf course, you know, and uh, it won't be Jewish. And that's what it became, because one of Herod's uh, most important long-lasting policies was the introduction of, of large numbers of colonists who were not Jewish into Eretz Yisrael. He took whole areas and gave them to foreigners, Greeks, Syrians, from Asia Minor, here, there, and the other, uh, as colonists to set up and build cities and farming settlements throughout Israel. And, uh, you know, if you go into tours today, if you go, for example, to Beit Shan, take one example, and Caesarea is another, you see cities that have no trace of anything Jewish in it when they're archaeologically excavated. And they have a ton and a half of things of the Greek and Roman culture in there. And that was done as a matter of deliberate state policy. And uh, he was unfortunately very successful in this. You have to understand what I'm talking about. He figured, I'm going to make it impossible for them to ever rebel against me. Because if I put every few miles a non-Jewish town, if there's ever a rebellion, those guys are going to be on my side. And that's exactly what happened later on when the Jews tried to rebel against the Romans. As I say before, it's eerily uh, similar to the situation in the state of Israel today, in which anybody goes to Israel knows. You drive here, it's a Jewish town. You drive a few miles away, it's not. And God forbid, if ever a war, these ones are going to be on this side, and that one's going to be on that side. It's, it's, it's really problematic. So uh, you can pretty much, as far as we can tell, ascribe the Palestinians and their origins to uh, Herod. You understand? That doesn't mean everyone is descended from these people, but that's the origins of it, because as I said before, up to the time of Herod, as a result of the Maccabean and Hasmonean policies, there were no people in Israel who were not Jewish. Right? Right, right or wrong? Whether or not they're Arabs has to do with the Arab conquest and the acculturation of it that resulted from that. Um, so, you know, in the long, the short answer is some are and some are not. Some are Europeans. I didn't say Europeans, but, the, you know, if you, if you go back way back when, you go back to this period that I'm talking about. All of which shows you uh, the real problems that kicked in. And then, as I say before, they got under the Romans directly. And then you have a long, a sad succession of these... Roman governors, or procurators as they were officially uh, designated. Augustus Caesar only appointed nobles, equestrians to this position. Um, these are people who had no connection whatsoever with Judaism. Uh, the Roman upper class, as I said last time, tragically, completely misunderstood Judaism. Perhaps the misunderstanding was both ways. But one thing is for sure, the ruling power has absolutely no idea or very twisted ideas of what uh, Jews and Jewish culture and Judaism is all about. 
Uh, mind you, th- people like Augustus Caesar and Tiberius and the other emperors weren't uh, like Hitler. Uh, they were intelligent rulers. They were not out to uh, provoke uh, fights with Jews when it's not necessary any more, for example, than the United States today is interested in provoking fights with countries unnecessarily. Um, and so, when the, they sent the procurators over, one of the things they said was, don't have your capital city, don't reside in Jerusalem, because that's uh, Mea Sharm. It's ultra-Orthodox. Um, they won't understand the Roman uh, mentality. Uh, it'll be too much of a culture clash. There's no nightlife. Uh, you don't want to go there. <laughs> but rather, the capital city should be in Caesarea over there. And that was very bad because that means that the Roman governors who are ruling Judea are in the cities where the entire population almost are not only non-Jews, but they're non-Jews that profoundly hate the Jews, and the Jews hate them. They were brought in as foreign colonists precisely in order to destroy the Jewish um, population contiguity and the geographical contiguity, and uh, they're brought in as a foreign element, and uh, so here's your Roman equestrian, for example, and you're a Roman knight, and you get a position in the uh, colonial department, as they would say today, uh, to be the governor in Judea, and you show up over there, and what do you know about Jews? And uh, you have your headquarters and your palace and all the rest of it, with three or four or five thousand men, not more, soldiers under your command, and you hang out all the time in Caesarea, and you know, your next door neighbor, your butler, your tailor, your butcher, your baker, they all tell you, oh, the Jews, they eat children, they do all kinds of terrible things, you know, they're, they're just horrible. And um, the one or two times a year that you go around the country typically would be during the Sholish Regolim, during the pilgrimage festivals, because that's when you need a show of force. Uh, think about Pesach, for example, in the period that I'm speaking about. Um, Josephus, again, uh, records, uh, not long before the temple was destroyed, that one of the Roman governors wanted to ascertain how many pilgrims there were coming to for Pesach from all over the world. Because it wasn't only the Jewish population of Israel that came in their throngs to do the carbon Pesach, which, as many know, is what you call a mitzvah, it's a real uh, commandment, very strong commandment. But there are tons of Jews, tons of Jews, who came, for example, from Egypt, which is next door and has a significant Jewish population, from Syria and from Babylonia, even though Babylonia is outside the borders of the Roman Empire. Philo, who lives at this time, describes gigantic caravans uh, stretching for miles and miles of uh, Jewish pilgrims. Lahavdol is something along the lines that you see today going to Mecca. It was a huge uh, phenomenon. Um, and uh, that means that the place is very tense. On Pesach time, you have gigantic mobs. All you need is a couple rabble-rousers and to make a, a revolt against the Romans. This is what the Romans are always afraid of. Consequently, every year comes Pesach, for example, and perhaps some of the other holidays, but Pesach is the most famous. The Roman army has to march in Jerusalem, uh, take up headquarters in the fortress next to the base of Migdash, which was built by Herod precisely to act as a citadel that could control militarily the base of Migdash. In other words, the Antonia Fortress, named after Mark Antony, built by Herod, is huge and gigantic. It looks down on the base of Migdash. If anybody tries to do anything, they can shoot down on them, and you can't get at them. Can't get at the Romans. And so the Romans march in uh, a week before Pesach. Uh, the Jews are all coming in. You can be sure people are saying, this is our holiday of freedom. Ha ha. You know, look at the Romans. All you need is an intemperate Roman uh, captain or colonel or two. And this eventually happened. An intemperate, uh, immoderate Roman general or governor. Or, or, as was always the case, an intemperate or immoderate Jew. Uh, particularly the youth, uh, the fiery ones, and uh, you've got a tinderbox. You've you, you got, you got riots and, and revolts on your hands, and this happened from time to time. Uh, so uh, the whole public life was, so to speak, poisoned by these kinds of uh, phenomena. And yet, and yet, the governors uh, that were sent were under strict orders from Augustus Caesar and the emperors after him, uh, to, just like the American army was in Saudi Arabia. Don't offend the locals. Okay, we have people here, I know, that served in Saudi Arabia. Confirm. You, know, you can't wear a cross, can't wear a mug and dove it. You can't do any of that sort of thing. Um, and the U.S. puts up with it out of calculated self-interest. And we know uh, what's going on. Well, Augustus Caesar, for example, 
or Tiberius, or even Caligula or Claudius, they saw it the same way. And they said, put up with it. The Jews are nuts when it comes to images and pictures. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, but that's who they are. Uh, it's not worth it to have a war over something that's avoidable. And so when you come to Israel and you go out in Jewish areas or you march to Jerusalem, she's the eagles. Uh, cover over your shields and other signs and ensigns because even though they seem harmless to you, uh, the Jews take great offense at it. And there are many stories uh, from this period exactly along those lines where uh, the Romans were compelled, uh, every legion had its uh, standard, its uh, banner like you see in the pictures and the movies and whatever, the, you know, with, with the golden eagles and whatever, and uh, it's a god to them. And uh, you know, you're supposed to die if you're a Roman legionary to protect that uh, ensign. And they have other images along those lines. And uh, we're the boss, the Roman average soldier says, or Roman centurion, or the curian, the captain or the officer. Why do we have to give in to this Jewish nonsense? And the general said, well, that's an order, and I don't like it either, but you know, that's what we got to, right away you got a terribly tense situation. And uh, the Jews were prepared to riot and, and worse over these little incidents. Uh, later on, there was uh, the famous Pontius Pilate, who was sent as a governor by Tiberius, the next emperor. And uh, at a certain point, he brings into Jerusalem secretly two shields with paintings on them of the emperor's sons, Tiberius' sons, and uh, without orders. And uh, they put them in the Antonia Fortress, a figure nobody can see it anyway. Who's the boss around there? The Jews find out about it as a major riot, or almost a riot. They come in huge numbers before the governor's palace in Jerusalem, and they say, this is a violation of our religion. The emperor never told you to do this. Why are you offending our national custom? It's really, really a problem with us, and, uh, and it's not in your orders, because we know. It violates policy, and he had this situation where it was like a standoff. He didn't want to give in to them and show that they're the boss. On the other hands, he said, if you don't get out of the way, I'll kill you. And they all went like this. So they bared their necks and said, well, then kill us. We're not fighting back, but you're going to have a massacre on your hands. You send that report to the emperor. And he had to back off. And not only that, but when a report of this came to the emperor Tiberius, who, as we'll see in a minute, was most of the time nuts. Okay? Tiberius is the guy who hung around Capri and thought it's fun to push little girls off the cliff and see them go tearing down. And that's, by the way, the least of his oddities and the only one I can mention in a synagogue. The, 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 that same Emperor Tiberius, when he heard that his governor in Jerusalem had unauthorized, uh, brought these two uh, shields in there, he fired him. He wrote him a letter full of imprecations and cursed him out and he fired him. Uh, because, you know, I say when there's a war, and you don't tell me when there's a war. You understand? And so you have this very strange situation uh, where the Romans are directly in charge, the Jews are hating it more and more, but the Romans never step over a line like in the time of Antiochus, where they made it a black and white kind of confrontation that they prohibited, and the Greeks prohibited them from keeping Shabbos, or the Greeks prohibited them from circumcision. The Romans never did that. And so it became very uh, gray area, very, very difficult to ascertain. Shall we revolt now? Shall we not revolt now? Is this doable? Is it not doable? It's very much like the story you hear about the frog who's in the water and every once in a while they raise the temperature. That's exactly the way people felt in, in, in Judea and in Eretz Yisrael uh, during this time. And I'll tell you again, the real tragedy was the Romans didn't get it. Uh, they would have been a lot wiser and a lot smarter to especially after the death of Herod, say, oh, you got Hillel over here, you got one of these rabbis, put him in charge, because what's he going to do? He's going to tell everybody, study the Torah all day long, stick with your sacrifices, stay in the base medrash. That, that's the best thing the Romans could do. They should, they should have bankrolled all the yeshivas. <laughs> well, because it meant that they were not going to get involved in any kind of activities that would constitute political trouble for the Roman Empire. And what's the bottom line for the Roman Empire? I'll say it again. The emperors, at this period of history, were quite intelligent, at least in their administration of the imperial area. Um, Augustus Caesar did not like Jews, but it's very famous that um, at, during his reign over here, oh, I think if you get the Roman Empire up there, during his reign in Asia Minor, which today you call Turkey, there was a problem with uh, parties getting out of hand and knife fights breaking out. And, well, it's not unknown in America. <laughs> and uh, all kind of trouble. What can I say? The parties get out of hand. And uh, the result is that when you had Augustus Caesar in there, 
So he wasn't going to tolerate anything. Seven o'clock curfew. Everybody's grounded. He could do it at Roman. He did it for 16 years. And, uh, and uh, there you have it. You know, let's put it this way. There will not be any rowdy parties in Asia Minor when I'm the emperor. Uh, I'll ground everybody. But he says over there, but not the Jews. They can go out. Because, as he puts it, it's well known that when the Jews get together for their common suppers, no unseemly conduct ever ensues. Which is interesting. Which means, he didn't like Jews, he was possibly some sort of anti-Semite, but he wasn't stupid. Understand? He, was, uh, he had both feet on the ground. Uh, same thing with the other emperors, I might say. It's very interesting to explore uh, this entire area. And so, somebody who was as smart as that simply didn't understand the realities of the Jewish religion and the Jewish life in there, and didn't pursue a policy, unfortunately, that would have worked out good for both sides. But instead, he had guys like Valerianus Gratus and Pontius Pilate and all these other people who turned out to all to be petty tyrants and dictators and constantly uh, you know, heated up uh, the situation. I always like to say, if you want to get a little bit of an idea of what an intelligent Roman thought about the Jews, it's not so hard. You can just pull out Tacitus, who lived a little bit later, but was a leading Roman historian, he writes about all of Roman history, and he knows the whole world and all the rest of it, and he says, oh, what, who are the Jews? And it's crazy. You know, he said, the Jews come from the island of Crete, and, you know, from a volcano and things like this. And at least he said, that's one version. Another version is, they're a heterogeneous band that fled from Assyria. That's true, by the way. Uh, and I always like, he says, when you get down to the Jewish religion, they're nuts. He says, they, he couldn't understand Shabbos. You know, to a Roman pagan, what's that all about? And he says... Uh, they say they instituted a rest on the seventh day because that brought them rest from their toils. But afterward, charmed with the pleasures of idleness, the seventh year also was devoted to sloth. <laughs> well, that's the Shemitah year, you know what I'm saying? Well, because from their mind, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Why would grown people, farmers, leave a field fallow uh, you know, for a year? And uh, he has other things over there. These rituals and ceremonies, howsoever introduced, he says, have the support of antiquity. Shabbos and Shemitah are very ancient. There are other institutions which have been extensively adopted, are tainted with execrable knavery. For the scum and refuse of all the nations, renouncing the religion of their own country, were in the habit of bringing gifts and offerings to Jerusalem, hence the wealth and grandeur of the state. Which means that ironically, although things were getting worse and worse in Eretz Yisrael, in Judea, and they did get worse and worse, at that very time, from the year 1 to the year 70 approximately, the Jewish religion was growing by leaps and bounds everywhere else outside of Israel, across the Roman Empire, and, and beyond the Roman Empire as well. This is the golden age, so to speak, of conversion. This is the golden age of non-Jews who were interested either 100% or 75% or even less, or 50-35% in Judaism, in the city of Rome, in Greece, in Egypt, in places as far away as Spain, we have plenty of evidence of this. There were princes and kings and queens in Iraq, such as Queen Helen, who converted to Judaism and eventually, as the Mishnah tells us, moved to Jerusalem and uh, dedicated public buildings and things of that nature over there. Uh, plenty of little princes and kings in Herod's time and afterwards, for one reason or another, converted to the Jewish religion. Now, I wasn't there, and I don't know what kind of conversion it was, but the, the fact it, itself is extremely significant. And remember, in the time I'm talking about, a synagogue, which is a Greek word, that was held outside of Israel, the uh, davening and the reading of the Torah is in Greek. And so the people attending, even if you're not Jewish, you can, um, what shall I say, participate or understand what's going on over there. And obviously it was attractive. Okay? Either it was the speeches of Rabbi Friend or uh, <laughs> of that time, or, or as Fischl Gross once told me, there were other uh, in his opinion, there were other attractions over there. But the bottom line is that uh, there was a huge interest um, in Judaism, which, as you see, bothered the Romans. He says, scum and refuse of all the earth are, are abandoning their families like the Moonies, and they're running off to this thing called Judaism, which to him is a cult and not a religion. So you have to throw all this into the pot, and you begin to understand the tremendous tensions that the Jews are going through in the years, between the year 6 on the one hand, when the, uh, when the direct Roman administration began, and down to the Corbin of the Basin, to the war that broke out 60 years later, because that's what happened, from the year 60 to the year 66. So we're looking now at six decades of uh, this very troublesome kind of situation. Um, one of the bad things that happened is 
the, the Roman governors, after a while, when they come in and they're there only for a year or two or three, or sometimes more, they want to uh, do well, not do good. And so uh, they hook up with the local bandits and, 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 and crime flourishes under the Roman administration as it never did. And the Romans were famous, generally for speaking, for being tough on crime, as we all know, uh, but not in Eretz not in Judea. There, Valerianus Gratus, who was the governor before Pontius Pilate, basically got off the boat and says, who are the five or six top mafia guys, and here's my cut. And he approached them. And again, this isn't Josephus, this is not in the Gemara. Uh, what happens when law and order breaks down in any society? Is everything gets poisoned, you see? Because the situation was as I described it, and it wasn't getting better, and they didn't know at that time what you and I know today, the unfortunate fact that it was going to last six centuries. The Romans weren't going anywhere. So they didn't know that. Uh, so the Jewish people figured, you know, sooner or later things will change, but, uh, but it didn't. You see? Now, what happens when life stinks, when the situation is impossible and uh, it's not getting better? What do people do in general when they find themselves in uh, political or national or individual situations which are really bad? Uh, so sometimes they will rise up and revolt against it. That was not doable in the Roman period. During the six decades that I'm talking about, the hotheads were held down by everybody else. Uh, the hotheads said, let's go and do it. Let's take over the Romans. The smarter people realized you're not going to beat the Roman army, which they were 100% correct in because eventually when the Jews did revolt, they were wiped out by the Roman army. They didn't stand a chance, as we'll see. But uh, what do you do then if you can't revolt, you can't rise? Uh, well, uh, what usually happens in most societies is people need some kind of escapism. Okay? Uh, what do people do, for example, in the United States of America when they live in uh, urban or other environments in which it's lousy, it's not getting better, and it never will. Yeah, so drugs is, a, is, is, is very popular. You're exactly right. Alcohol thinks it's nature because you check out of the current reality, which isn't funny, you're in a different reality. And I know people make fun of it on the outside and they say you're not really changing anything. It'll do, it'll do. Um, I know, but you're, you're skipping over the most famous of the uh, escape mechanisms out there, and that's religion, correct? You know, Karl Marx, of course, said that religion, as we all know, is the opium of the masses. Everybody in the world agrees with that. I've never met anyone that doesn't agree that religion is the opium of the masses. The only thing is they say, I guess, it's everybody else's religion. <laughs> you understand? You ask a Jew, he said, why are so many people out there, Buddhists and Taoists uh, and this and that and the other? So, oh, it's the opium of religion. They need something to keep them going. Ask a Catholic, why is everybody out there that are not Catholic? It's all opium of the masses. You understand? Uh, everybody agrees with that for the other person's religion, you see? Because how do we explain that the Eskimos worship, I don't know, whatever they worship? Well, it's opium in the masses. They've got to keep them this cold out there, you know? And uh, <laughs> listen, even a witch doctor in the Amazon jungle or in, or in Africa somewhere, he believes like this. In our little village, the totem, that's the real God. All the others out there, it's the opium, Nebuch, it's the opium in the masses. <laughs> you see? Which means, after all the joking is over, that uh, religion, because it deals in, in what's not real here and now, not material, uh, can easily be uh, manipulated and uh, perverted, shall we say, or used in various ways. In the Jewish case, this is the period in our history, the only period, uh, when there was an outbreak of uh, false messiahs. I mean, a bunch of them. Now, we all know that in Jewish history, from time to time, you have like Shabtai Tzvi, for example, in the 17th century. Very unusual. Well, he's the only guy I know that got a huge following. Once in a while, you'll find in the 1400s and the 1200s, here, there, and the other, this guy steps forward and claims to be Mashiach. That guy does. A guy in Persia was a famous thing. Another guy in Spain and North Africa and Yemen. You know, here in the little things, uh, one guy in the 1000s, two guys in the 1100s, whatever. In Israel, between the, the in time I'm talking about, between the year 6 and the year 66, there's like a hundred of them that we know about, and, uh, and there are more besides them. Josephus mentions a few other uh, stories. Eusebius and others mention others. Uh, it's like crazy. Uh, what does that mean? That, you know, the, the reality was so bad for the Jews living in Israel 
that people were grasping at straws. And if it was fairly clear to most people, to most people, that you can't beat the Romans in normal fashion, in regular military fashion, well, it's not surprising someone will step forward and say, yes, but we can defeat them miraculously. How do you know? God told me last night. Yeah, actually, how long have we had this conversation? Three weeks, you know. And even though people smirk, but the history of Messianism is that when somebody claims these things, some people believe it. And so we have um, many, many people popping up now in the 10s, the 20s, the 30s, 40s, and so forth. During this period, um, some were more charismatic, some were less charismatic, who claimed to be the Mashiach, and that means that they're somehow or other going to get the Romans out of there. Because that's what it was. You know, we will bring the, it's just unbelievable what happened. In the time of our grandfathers, we had our own country, everything was going great. I'm sure when you look back in, in hindsight, they kind of, uh, you know, put, didn't concentrate on the pharisee Sadducee fights. They said, but look at the map, and look what we did, and all the rest, and we were our own bosses. And for some reason or other, maybe for our own sins, maybe for our own folly, Maybe some, you know, a lot of people like to blame others. Maybe it's a foreign uh, uh, plots and things of this nature. But we've lost it. But we can get it back. And God told me we can get it back. And I'm the one that's going to do it. And some of these people um, thought in terms of military, that is to say, they organized little revolts here and there, which were always suppressed quickly by the Romans. And other people, literally, one guy said, follow me, we'll jump off the walls of Jerusalem like Peter Pan will fly and bomb the Romans. And there were a bunch of people that jumped off and got killed, of course. And another guy said, follow me in the Mediterranean River, and we'll split the Mediterranean as Moshe Rabbeinu split the Red Sea and march on Rome. And there are people that walked in like Nachshem and Aminam and drowned. You know, in other words, they had true believers. And this is most uncharacteristic of Jewish history. You understand? You don't really find this uh, with rarities, with rare exceptions in our history. The Jews have always been compelled uh, by our circumstances and by our beliefs to uh, make the best of bad situations where we, we, we found ourselves, uh, whether in Poland or Spain or Egypt or wherever it is. If tried, generally speaking, I mean, even the concentration camps, to make the best of uh, bad situations. Someone to claim that they can jump out of reality, as it were, and be a heaven-sent guide, uh, that you find primarily in this period. And it's not too hard to understand why. Because uh, it, this can't be happening to us, people said. You know, God can't do this. There's got to be a way out. I mean, how can these lousy Romans get away with it and there's nothing we can do about it? And it was uh, really rough. That's why I always say, although I am uh, somewhat notorious for uh, my profound historical skepticism over the historicity of Jesus, um, if you want to look at it in, in, his, in historical terms, uh, but if there was something to that story, if, I say, uh, wouldn't surprise me, because what do you tell me? A guy living in the 20s and the 30s of the common era came forth and claimed he's the Messiah? Well, get in line. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you're number 18 on the list. And what happened? The Romans killed him or somebody killed him? Get in line. That's what happened to all these people. So, as I say before, if you want to be very technical about it, there's no, as far as I'm aware, there's no actual historical evidence they ever existed. But if I'm wrong, um, once it would fit perfectly in this period of history. The question we all have to ask is, why did this legend take off and, 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 and balloon, become the dominant religion in the world? That's a separate issue. But I'm just saying it's very characteristic of that uh, period, and all the stories of the New Testament, of course, reflect the kind of reality of the Roman occupation, the incredible tension, the people looking for ways out, and, and, and so on and so forth. Now, um, Augustus died in uh, the year 14, under either normal circumstances or non-normal circumstances, depending on which historian you like to, uh, which Roman historian you like to follow. But uh, he was succeeded by Tiberius, uh, who ruled from uh, 14 to 37. And uh, Tiberius also, uh, like I said before, was really nuts. But he took great care to hide his oddities uh, in private life. As an emperor, as a governor of the empire, he ran it uh, very uh, fairly and very smoothly. You understand? So he had a public persona and a private one. And uh, the only thing is that Augustus had appointed these officials and, and, and kept them in office for two years. Uh, there was Caponius and this guy and that guy, you know, in for two years, out, in for two years, out. 
And that's his way of constantly rotating these people and not letting them go native, as we would say today, or get too corrupt. Tiberius, as a matter of policy, believed in putting a guy in and leaving him there, you know, until, uh, until necessary to get rid of him. It's very famous that Tiberius, who was a great general in his day, uh, before he became the emperor, said, I was once on a battlefield and I came across a Roman soldier who had been badly wounded, he was writhing in his blood, and uh, there were all these uh, ants that were drinking the blood, and I wanted to, I felt bad for him, and I wanted to chase them away, and the soldier says, do not do that, these ants have all drunk their fill and they're just hanging around. If you drive them away, new ones will come and suck me dry and I'll die. And you understand the muscle behind that. You know, this guy's in the, you know, he's the road commissioner of Louisiana, he's already made his uh, money and, you know, he's, he's in there. You get a new guy to just start all over again, it'll suck you worse. The result is that the Jews start to have some really bad proclamations and couldn't get rid of them. As they say before, there was this guy Gratus who was in for 10 years, and Pontius Pilate, who's notorious in Jewish history, I'm not talking about Christian history, for doing the types of things that I said before. A profound corruption, a rise of crime, uh, strong anti-Semitism, provocation of the people. Uh, these were Meisim B'chol Yom. Now, in 37, Tiberius uh, died. Again, followed, depending on whether he died or was uh, otherwise dispatched. And uh, Caligula became the emperor. Well, you've all heard of Caligula. So, uh, and he had a particular problem of, uh, with, with the Jews because... Uh, Famous story Caligula is for seven months he was normal and then he got sick and then by the time, this, by the time he recovered from the illness, uh, he literally was off his mind. And uh, many are famous with the, many are familiar with the famous statement that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely uh, from Lord Acton, the famous British Catholic historian. He was talking about Tiberius and Caligula when he said that. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And uh, with Caligula, for example, he once went swimming in, uh, in, in the ocean and on the Mediterranean and he got knocked down by a wave and he thought that Neptune had declared war on him and he had the Roman army attack the sea. You understand? And, uh, and the point is, no one had the courage to say the emperor has no clothes. No one said, you're crazy. He appointed his horse as a senator and all kind of other crazy things. And wait a second, no one said boo, which is really uh, a profoundly interesting phenomenon that the Romans are the master race and they were the people who conquered everybody, but they could be led around the nose by such an individual. Well, he got into his mind, among other things, that first of all, he's a god. Second of all, he's the god of gods. In fact, he's the only god, and therefore all the other idols have to be gotten rid of, and only his should be in there. The rest of the Roman Empire knew that he's crazy, and he'll kill them if they don't go along. So they got rid of all their idols, and they put in his statue in every temple, or he gave it pride of place, let's put it that way. Um, he got in the idea, well, what about the Jews? They should put it also in their temple. Uh, that launched the whole business. And uh, he, we were very lucky that the Roman governor of, of Syria, who was the guy in charge, Petronius, was the rare case of an honest and moderate Roman official. One shudders to think, had a Pontius Pilate type been in there, he said, good, now I have permission to go kill all the Jews. And I'm not exaggerating when I say that. He said, now we can kill all the Jews. The emperor said, it's okay. It's scary. Uh, we know that when uh, Caligula became the emperor here in Alexandria, huge riots broke out, pogroms broke out against the Jews, which are described in great detail in a book called Flaccus by Philo, who lived through them, where they burned people, uh, they nailed them to the masts of ships, and did all kind of horrible things. These were the locals against the Jewish community, because you remember I told you before everybody's grounded except the Jews? Well, you have 600 years of that kind of exceptionalism, and very strong resentment builds up, and uh, it came out. And why did it come out? Because they knew Caligula wouldn't do anything about it because they didn't like the Jews anyway. Okay. And so, what am I telling you over and over again with these stories? That the Jews during this period of history found themselves the plaything of Rome. That it really depended, unfortunately, the lives of people, the fortunes of people, of entire races, depended on the whims of a tiny handful of people, sometimes of one. In the case of Caligula, I mean, it's really scary to think about that. One guy could be off his mind and say, oh, let's kill, kill the Jews. Generally speaking, he will find people that will do it. In the case of Caligula, he ordered that his statue be put up in the Beis Hamikdash, in the Kodesh HaKadoshim. The uh, governor of Syria, the Roman general, who was the governor of Syria, Petronius, he immediately said, this is a crazy idea, but if I say anything to him, that'll just provoke him even more. And so 
he really tried delaying tactics. Uh, he said a uh, contest who can make the best statue and, you know, draw it out until, but, you know, after a while, time went on and on. And, you know, he said, let's roll it nicely and slowly from the place it's built to the, to the Jewish border. I mean, he really uh, went the extra mile, but Caligula insisted that it be all put in there, in the basement. What are you going to do? And when it came to the borders of Israel, uh, masses of Jews, you know, hundreds of thousands, they said the smoke was rising far away. You can see it. Came there and once again, you know, bared their uh, throats and said, guess, kill us. You know, we don't want to fight against Rome. This is not anything like this, but this is, this is you're crossing a red line. Uh, the Roman Empire has always respected the Jewish religion. We never made any trouble about that. Uh, we respect the emperor. We offer sacrifices in his behalf every day. It's not a political disloyalty issue. We can't have idols. That's a Jewish thing. What are you going to do? And uh, Petronius, who cursed him out, but he didn't order the men to kill him. He said, I'll consult with the emperor. And uh, it's a whole long story about what happened because, uh, you know, Caligula, as I say, was crazy, and he wouldn't mind at all just saying, oh, kill him. And it so happened, it's really like a, like a Purim story, that uh, Caligula, who you can imagine the type of individual he was, as often happens, had a Jewish friend from school. Yeah. His roommate, you know, a Jewish friend from school. Uh, Herod's grandson, his name was Herod Agrippa. Uh, Agrippa had been uh, Augustus's number two general, so they named him after him to flatter him. And Herod Agrippa grew up, and he was Jewish. He was as Jewish as Herod was, so let's leave a big question mark there. But he was viewed as Jewish, and he viewed himself as Jewish in one sense or another, and uh, Herod, being the smart guy that he was, said when the kid was very young, the best thing I can do is send you to Harvard, you know, to Andover. The best thing I can do is send you to a place where your roommates and the people you hang around with will one day occupy more important positions. And believe it or not, you know, he lucked out. One of the guys he chose to hang around with, a wild and crazy nut as a teenager, was Gaius Caligula. Uh, they eventually became notorious in Rome, in Rome for throwing the wildest parties. In Rome. Um, and uh, it's even at a certain point that Herod Agrippa said to Caligula once in the middle of parties, oh, I can't wait till that old jerk dies and you and I, you'll be the emperor, then we'll really throw a party. And Tiberius found out about this, the former emperor, and threw him into jail. And then he had mazel, because shortly afterwards, Tiberius died. And Caligula became the emperor, and he said, I have one real friend out there. No, nobody suffered on my, this guy suffered on my behalf. So he took him out. He says, he took off his chains from jail and gave him golden chains as a commemoration. So this guy had pull with uh, Caligula. Okay, there's always some connection in there. And uh, the Jews basically went to this guy. And they said, listen, you may not be the most religious Jew to ever walk down the block, but, but that's not important now. Now is the time for you to step up to the plate. And, and he did. You know, he went to see the emperor. It's a long, very interesting story. There's a book about this written by Philo at that time called The Embassy to Caligula. He was a contemporary witness the whole thing. And he went to see, you can read it, it's, it's online. And uh, he went to see Caligula and he said, I don't think it's a great idea, this. And Caligula screamed at him and you know, said, I'll kill you, and you, I see you're not my friend, you're just a Jew, and all the rest of it. And uh, he fainted, Agrippa fainted naturally. And when he was brought home, he, uh, he revived and wrote a letter, which is uh, often, I won't take, because it'll take too much time, but he wrote a letter to Caligula, which is a masterpiece of Roman psychology, because that's what he, everybody should read it once. And he basically said something along the lines that his grandfather said back to Augustus, which is, Listen, I know you're a great emperor, no question about it. Uh, but listen, I'm not going to hide the fact I'm a Jew. What can I do? I'm a Jew. And the Jews have an old temple, and it's been around for a long time. And you as a Roman should particularly understand the significance of ancient religious institutions. Because who is there like you that stands as a paragon of Roman piety? Who, who is there more than you come from the Julio-Claudian family, which goes back all the way in Rome, that understands how religious customs may look strange to other people, but not to the people that have them themselves. After all, the Romans, who are these big uh, rationalists, they open the entrails of chickens to figure out whether they should go fight a battle or not. You know, so that was the whole science of being a Roman uh, Kohen. See, it's true. Anyway, 
Uh, and he goes on along these lines. So he says, so, you know, basically he said like this, you want to kill me, kill me. But, you know, Augustus honored the temple, and Tiberius honored the temple, and Julius Caesar honored the temple. They appreciated the idea, even though they're Romans, that there should be one place in the world with zero statues. Because even you, being the brilliant, intelligent Roman that you are, understand that God's not really physical. And a true philosopher, a true philosopher such as yourself, will apprehend the grandeur of a temple dedicated to something which is beyond sight. And the uh, story is, it worked. Caligula says it was, he said he was angry at him for, for being too Jewish, but then he, he respected him for being frank and you know, owning up to who he was. And he tickled him in the right way, and Caligula was going to call it off, but then he got the letter from Petronius in Syria the next day saying, you sure you want to go through with this project and have me kill all the Jews? Because they really don't want this statue in the temple. And that ticked him off the opposite direction. He said, well, then go kill him and then kill yourself right? for even daring to question my orders. Go to Jerusalem, put the, put the statue in the temple, kill everybody that gets in your way. Uh, well, let's wipe out the Jewish people in Israel. And, uh, and, you know, what's for breakfast? That's who Caligula is. And then commit suicide. That was really bad news, obviously. Uh, all that, all that effort went down the drain. The good news is that the next day or two days later, Caligula was assassinated at, at a ball game. And <laughs> the whole family, him and his whole family was wiped out, uh, not for surprising reasons. And uh, the new emperor that came in was a close friend, believe it or not, of Herod Agrippa. <laughs> uh, as I say before, he knew who to be, who, next to who to sit in the cafeteria. <laughs> of uh, Exeter, you know, <laughs> Andover Academy, and uh, boys Latin, as we say in Baltimore. And, uh, and the new emperor, there's a lot more to it than I'm telling, but I'm just giving you the basics. And uh, the new emperor basically said, uh, what can I do for you? And he said, well, you don't really want to have a war to put a statue of Caligula in the temple, right? So he said, let's call it off. And uh, the famous story is that uh, they sent a ship out to rescind the order, but of course the ship will get there too late, so this guy will go and put in the thing and then kill himself, but a, a storm blew the ship off course and the second ship got there first. So it was a happy ending. Uh, this is recorded, as I said before, in, in, in Josephus and in Philo. Uh, so the Gemara in its way, or, or may I say the Chazal, records this as, as a holiday. Okay? If you look in the Megillus Tinus, as we call it, which is a list of famous dates, uh, that used to be celebrated as national holidays in the Jewish religion, uh, one of them, uh, two stand out for us tonight. One is the uh, 7th of Kislev, and the other one is the 23rd of uh, Shabbat. And the 7th of Kislev is the day that Herod died. On the 23rd, uh, 22nd, excuse me, of uh, Shabbat, that uh, the Avidita, the Avodah Zorah, the pagan worship, that the enemy wanted to introduce into the Hechel was Batla, was nullified, and it says, Yom Shishol Gaskala says, Aslam Lahamin Behechel. Gaskala is a Caligula, it's a corruption. Um, which means that, uh, you know, there was a voice in the Kurdish Galatian who told him Caligula died that day and so forth. And you can read it yourself, it's in the Megillus Tinus. And my point is, and with this I'll conclude because the hour is late, that the few stories that I've shared with you bring out the unfortunate reality that the Jews were really, as I said before, a plaything in the hands of others because uh, they all were under the uh, direct military and, um, and political control, not of their own government, certainly not of the rabbis, not of even a pacific party, not even a party of uh, collaborators, but of the Romans who uh, misunderstood them and, uh, and therefore profoundly hated them. The only difference is, there were those that hated them but were intelligent about it, and there were those who hated them and were, as I say, immoderate and intemperate about it. One could see, already at that time, uh, the coming clouds. One could see that this is not going to have a happy ending. And that's why the Gemara says in many places, this business of 40 years. 40 years before the base mix was destroyed, they stopped doing the Soto rules. They stopped keeping the laws of uh, capital punishment. They stopped all, the Shekhinah began to depart. 
40 years doesn't literally mean 40 years. It means the period prior uh, to the uh, destruction of, of the temple. So with this, we set up ourselves for next and final lecture in which we go to the uh, denouement, shall we say, the, 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 the way these issues finally resolve themselves, which, uh, as we know, is what we call today Tisha B'Av. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.